Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Most commentators identify chapter 7, verse 1, as the start of a new section in the letter. The Apostle Paul says, Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote. So it does very much sound as if Paul is moving on from the issues he wanted to discuss based on the reports he had heard from Chloe's people and from Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus. We're probably right in understanding the first six chapters as Paul's response to those troubling reports. And now here in chapter 7, he begins to address the questions that they had posed to him. The first several of which obviously had to do with sex, singleness, and marriage. I've mentioned already that there was a huge gap between the Roman sexual ethic and the Christian sexual ethic. And as these people move from one worldview to another, some confusion and misunderstanding was inevitable. They knew that Paul did not approve of typical Roman sexual practices, and so some of them very naturally wondered if maybe we wouldn't be better off not having sex at all, even as married couples. You can easily see how such an opinion might have developed. We're always pulling ourselves out of one ditch only to land face down in the ditch on the other side of the road. So these people had some questions, and thanks be to God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, The Apostle Paul had some answers. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1 of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. That was their question. The ESV puts it in quotation marks to help you see that. Now, here is Paul's answer. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. There are non-Christian historians who believe this to be the most revolutionary statement about human sexuality ever made by anyone in the ancient world. No one had ever said anything like this before the Apostle Paul. The marked mutuality of Paul's comments was totally unprecedented. Every Roman, of course, believed that the husband had authority over his wife's body. But no one had ever turned that around and said that the wife had authority over her husband's body. So Paul is saying two totally new things here. First of all, he's saying to the husband, you need to channel your sexual desire into your marriage. And the Romans, of course, said the exact opposite. Roman men only had sex with their wives in order to produce an heir. And the rest of the time they had sex with their slaves. That's why most of them had slaves. And and of course, they had sex with prostitutes. And Paul here says, no more of that. That's the first radical thing that he says. You've got to have sex within your marriage. You've got to channel your sexual energy inside that covenant relationship. 
And then he says, wives have sexual rights as well. So husbands, you need to give your wife sex whenever she wants it. And no one had ever said that. No one had ever acknowledged before that women might have sexual desires and sexual rights. Now, maybe you would rather that Paul hadn't said these things and hadn't spoken so forthrightly about these sorts of topics. Polite people have always wondered about that. John Calvin dealt with that. He said, profane persons might think that Paul does not act with sufficient modesty in discoursing in this manner as to the intercourse of a husband with his wife, or at least that it was unbecoming the dignity of an apostle. If, however, we consider the reasons that influenced him, we shall find that he was under the necessity of speaking of these things. He knew how prone everyone is to self-love and devoted to his own gratification. From this it comes that a husband, having had his desire gratified, treats his wife not merely with neglect, but even with disdain. And there are few that do not sometimes feel this disdain of their wives creep in upon them. It is for these reasons that he treats so carefully of the mutual obligations of the married life. Closed quote. When people are sexually confused, the church has to be a source of sexual clarity. Believe me, brothers and sisters, this will be part of our mandate in the coming generation. Now, that's the general rule. Every man should have his own wife and every woman her own husband, and they should have regular, mutually satisfying marital sex. However, Paul would like to put on the record an important exception to that general rule, and we hear about that now in verse 6. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. So Paul says marriage is a gift and celibacy is a gift. And I, for one, would wish that there were more people like me. As a single man, Paul was able to serve the Lord in a way that a family man never could. Paul could leave on a moment's notice and preach the gospel in a faraway, hostile land. Well, of course, a family man couldn't do that. Paul could do gospel ministry on his own dime in order to start a church in an unreached area. Well, of course, a family man couldn't do that either. So Paul says, I wish there were more men like me with the gift of celibacy, which is basically the ability to live happily without sex. That's a gift, Paul says. But marriage also is a gift. Either situation is good. The situation that isn't good is to be single without the gift of celibacy. He talks about that in verse 9. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So, marriage is good, celibacy is good, but being single while being obsessed with sex is not good. If that's your situation, you should seek marriage. Now, with that question out of the way, Paul begins to address the issue of divorce. Whether they asked him about this or whether Paul just figured that it was a logical extension of his conversation about marriage, obviously we don't know. We are listening in to only half of a conversation. But regardless, Paul thinks it important to talk about this. Verse 10, to the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. In this first part of the discussion, 
Paul is laying down the general standard within the Christian community. As a rule, Christians should not pursue divorce. The wife should not separate from her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. And if they separate for a time, they should remain unmarried so that they could be reconciled. We don't do divorce, Paul says. And he cites Jesus directly as his source for this injunction. That's the meaning of the phrase, not I, but the Lord. I'm not inventing this, Paul says. This this comes directly from Jesus. And scholars generally assume that Paul is referring here to the teaching of Jesus on divorce as recorded for us in passages such as Mark 10, 11 to 12, which says, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now, according to Mark 10, verse 10, this teaching was given in private directly to his disciples. So this is the well-known rule for followers of Jesus. And Paul applies it authoritatively to the disciples of Christ in Corinth. But then he goes on to say in verse 12, To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? The first thing we have to figure out here is what Paul means by to the rest, as you see in verse 12. Paul has laid down a general rule for Christians in verses 10 to 11. Christians do not pursue divorce, all right? But then he says something to the rest. Who are they? John Calvin, again, is very helpful here. He says, by the rest, he means those who are exceptions, so that the law common to others is not applicable to them. For an unequal marriage is on a different footing when married persons differ among themselves in respect of religion, close quote. Now, keep in mind that in the early church, as still today, it was very common for one member of the marriage to convert to Christ while the other member of the marriage remained a pagan or an unbeliever. Well, what do we do about that? We can't just quote Mark 10 to someone who doesn't love Jesus. That's not going to make much of an impression on them. So how do we handle mixed marriages? That is the question that the Apostle Paul is addressing here. His counsel, in a nutshell, seems to be that the Christian should never be the one to pursue the divorce. If the unbelieving spouse is willing to stay and work things out, then by all means do so. Who knows? You might even win your husband to the Lord, or you might even win your wife to the Lord. But if the unbeliever is the one pursuing the divorce, then let him go. What can you do in such a situation? You can't quote Jesus. You can't quote Paul. So let him go. In such cases, you are not bound. You are not obligated to fight for something that cannot be saved. Jay Adams, in his book, Marriage, Divorce, and Remarriage in the Bible, says here, the permissive imperative, let him depart, 
applies to any case in which the unbeliever no longer wishes or agrees to live with the believer, regardless of what that reason may be, so long as the believer has not provoked him or her to it instead of trying to hold the marriage together. Closed quote. So, honestly try and win the heart of the unconverted spouse. But if that doesn't happen, and he or she is determined to leave, then let them go. Paul goes on to say, In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved, or as the NRSV has it, in such a case, the brother or sister is not bound. Now, not bound here implies freedom to remarry. Instone Brewer explains, the only freedom that makes any sense in this context is the freedom to remarry. All Jewish divorce certificates and most Greco-Roman ones contain the words, you are free to marry any man you wish, or something very similar, closed quote. God doesn't call you to fight for something that can't be saved or to hold on to someone who doesn't want you to hold on to them. God doesn't call us to that. As verse 15 says, God has called us to peace. Now, we should also quickly clarify what Paul means by saying, I, not the Lord. Here, he is simply saying that in this case, Jesus did not address the issue of a marriage between a believer and an unbeliever. He gave his teaching. He laid down a general rule for the believing community, for the disciples. But he gave his apostles the authority to flesh these principles out and to make new application to specific circumstances. This does not in any way imply a lesser authority. The Apostle Paul had no problem asserting his authority as an apostle. We'll see him do that later in this letter. In chapter 14, he says that no one gets to speak in church if they do not recognize his authority as an apostle. So Paul is not shy when it comes to his authority. He's just stating the obvious. This is not found in Mark 10. This is not found in Matthew 19. Jesus did not directly address this. But you asked me about it, Paul says, so I'm speaking to it as an apostle. Verse 17. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Now, at first glance, this paragraph almost looks out of place. David Pryor helps us to identify the connection. He says, this next paragraph comes as a digression into Paul's teaching about different relationships within the family of God. He is, in effect, urging a basic attitude of contentment with whatever lot God gives to us, even if this includes circumstances which cause friction and frustration. To that extent, he is urging the same approach to life's other tensions 
as to marriage, closed quote. And I think that's right. I, and I think that's how conversation works. Remember, Paul was dictating this letter to his secretary, Sosthenes. So he was probably pacing around and speaking off the cuff, as it were. And as he finishes this thought about marriage and divorce, he immediately makes a connection between the attitudes needed to persevere in a difficult marriage to the same attitude needed to persevere in a variety of other difficult circumstances, and all for the sake of evangelism. In essence, he is saying, since God is sovereign, assume that wherever you are, he knows where you are, and he has a plan for you there. He puts you in that circumstance because there are people there that he wants you to reach out to. He may even have engineered some of these difficulties in order to allow you the opportunity to shine forth the surpassing power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, don't be obsessed with changing your circumstances. Focus instead on leveraging those circumstances for the sake of the kingdom. That's the argument. Wives, do you have a difficult husband? That brother needs to be saved, and who better to reach him than you? Focus on that. Servants, do you have a difficult master? That brother needs to be saved. Who better to reach him than you? Focus on that. Now, is this radical? Absolutely. Does it downplay the horrors of domestic abuse or slavery? Not at all. The Bible addresses bad husbands, and the Bible addresses and entirely undermines the institution of slavery. Just wait until we get to Paul's letter to Philemon. But what we are seeing here is that the gospel allows us to risk it all and to suffer all for the sake of the lost because what we have been given in Christ is kept secure for us in heaven. So we can stay in difficult situations and we can endure incredible difficulties because after all, we do follow a crucified Savior. That's the, a general principle. And there are all kinds of pastoral cautions that I would want to give you if we had the time and if we were together around those general principles. But the general principle is there in Scripture, and we need to see it. In general, what we see in the New Testament is that we are to serve where we are saved. But, but of course, Paul adds, if you can earn your freedom, take it, right? If, if a change for the better comes along in a righteous unsinful way, of course, grab it. But as long as you are there in that circumstance, be willing to suffer and serve in pursuit of the lost. Verse 25, now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. Now, the general gist of Paul's teaching here is pretty straightforward. Leon Morris is fabulous here. He summarizes this whole paragraph saying, When high seas are raging... 
it is no time for changing ships, closed quote. That makes a great deal of sense, doesn't it? It's crazy out there, Paul says. So it's hard to make decisions in a time of upheaval and uncertainty. Better to hold off. Better to stay where you are in the state where you were saved. That's the general idea. But of course, we want to know what Paul means by in view of the present distress and the present form of the world is passing away. Does Paul think that Jesus is going to return immediately? Well, as an apostle, Paul would have known, of course, that Jesus said that no one knows the day or the hour. But he would also have known that Jesus predicted nothing but trouble and tribulation between the time of his departure and the time of his return. In addition, Jesus spoke about a very sharp pain in terms of the destruction of Jerusalem. So Paul must have understood that the church was about to enter into some extraordinarily heavy seas. Whether this was going to be the storm or just a really bad storm, Paul couldn't have known. But he knew it was going to be difficult. And so, as he says in verse 32, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. So Paul says here, I just don't want to see you add to your anxieties unnecessarily. Persecution, tribulation, hard times, these are coming, and that's going to be difficult for the single person, but it's going to be devastatingly hard for the married person. Now, I'll be honest with you, I can understand this. I I identify with this. I, I like to think that by the grace of God, I would stand up well under persecution, But I absolutely quail before the thought of my children being taken from me or being hurt because of me. That is an altogether different burden. And Paul is just saying here, I'd love for you to be spared that. But I don't say this as a restraint, meaning I'm I'm not forbidding marriage by any means. I'm just telling you that it could make things harder for you when the bad times come. Verse 36. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly towards his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart, to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well. And he who refrains from marriage will do even better. So Paul says, if you can hold off on getting married, it might be wise. But if you can't, by all means proceed. It is no sin. I'm just saying it might be better to remain single given the uncertainty of the time. Verse 39. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet, in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I, too, have the Spirit of God. 
In this last little paragraph, Paul addresses the issue of Christian widows. We've talked about marriage, divorce, singleness, engagement. Now we need to say a few words about death. What if your spouse dies? And Paul's answer is fairly straightforward. If your spouse dies, you're free to remarry. Of course, only in the Lord. Don't go out and marry an unbeliever. You'll just find yourself in the same mess we just talked about above. But if you wish, you can remarry another believer. Yet, Paul again says it might be better to remain single if you have that particular gift. So why not pray for that gift? Don't only pray for the gift of marriage. Pray also for the gift of celibacy. That too is a spiritual gift. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at End of the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.